This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you from Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia. And I'm very, very pleased to be speaking uh, today with Doug Booth. He's the Dean of Adventure, Culinary Arts and Tourism at Thompson River University in British Columbia, Canada, and Professor Emeritus at the University of Otago, and the author of a, of a really fascinating, really rich, and, and very fun, I would say, very fun book called uh, Bondi Beach, Representations of an Austra- uh, Iconic Australian, out from Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. Welcome, Doug. Thank you very much, Keith. Uh, lovely to be with you, and appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk to you. Oh, of course. Well, uh, I'm not obviously a native Sydney cider, but when I saw a book about Bondi Beach, I needed to come and uh, and check it out. And I was, uh, it, you know, what it's it's not every time you pick up a book and you you're surprised, but. Um, this book surprised me in a lot of ways, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to that in a second, but also just really fulfilling. Like I felt, I felt, um, you know, I was surprised. And at the same time, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about um, the way I might approach history differently. And I thought it was a really daring book, some of the choices you made in terms of writing and voice. So it was really, uh, really fun to read. So I, I, we'll get all, into all that in a second, but I wonder, Doug, if you could tell us a little bit about how you came up with the book. Why write about Bondi Beach anyway? Yeah, well, um, this has a uh, this has a, almost a uh, lifetime um, history, uh, Keith. I've uh, always been interested in uh, beaches and uh, the early part of my life was spent down in uh, Victoria, Australia, around uh, Torquay by the, uh, the beach where my parents had a holiday house. So I grew up with the, uh, the beach from a uh, very early age. And uh, I've always lived um, by a beach, although living in central uh, British Columbia at the moment, that's taken me a little bit away from uh, the beach, although there are beaches along uh, the rivers. But um, always, uh, for 99% of my life, lived um, by a uh, beach and they've always uh, uh, fascinated me. And so I did my first degree in uh, geography at uh, Melbourne University and I was very interested in physical geography and I did um, coastal geography with... um, um, older people may remember uh, the great Eric Bird, so I remember doing uh, his course. Uh, didn't do particularly well in it, much to my um, uh, dismay, but um, uh, I did that course in uh, physical geography. But then uh, as I proceeded through my uh, degree, I got more and more interested in uh, human geography and uh, social geography and cultural geography, which took me away from the, uh, the physical and reorientated my interest in the beach towards what was going on there uh, socially. 
And right from a very early age, I saw the uh, beach as a uh, contested site in Australia, contested between different cultural groups, particularly surf lifesavers and uh, surfboard riders or surfers. And uh, so I've written um, a little bit about um, um, that over the over the years. Um, after I finished my PhD, which was actually in South Africa on uh, the sports boycott of uh, South Africa uh, during uh, the apartheid era, although I must say I also wrote one little piece about the desegregation of um, South African beaches while I was uh, there, and that was a ex- uh, little f- fun little piece that um, I uh, wrote. But um, I became more and more interested in uh, the social side of sport, and I managed to get a job at the uh, after I finished my PhD at Macquarie, I must say, uh, Keith, um, working there with Colin Tatz in the politics department. Um, I got a job at the University of Otago uh, teaching uh, the history of uh, sport, and I was your uh, standard, uh, standard um, social historian of sport. Basically, I saw sport, um, as I mentioned earlier, about the beach as a site of uh, contestation as to the meaning and the organisation and the government governance of sport. So I was your standard uh, social historian of uh, sport. And then um, a couple of things uh, happened about uh, around about four years apart. Um, the first one was at the University of Otago, where my mentor there, um, John Loy, who was a very well known in the uh, sociology of sports circles, and he was the dean um, there and the chair of the department, and he said uh, to me one day, he said, I want you to come into my research seminar and talk about um, history and talk about the different methods and approaches to uh, history. And I have to confess, I hadn't even given the subject um, um, the slightest bit of um, uh, thought. And I was a bit uh, miffed at the uh, request. I didn't want to uh, do that. I knew how I approached history. I knew how um, I wanted to teach it. I knew how I researched history. And I wasn't particularly interested in um, what my uh, colleagues were uh, doing. And of course, this may come as a a surprise to some people, but even today, um, you can easily get a a PhD in history and uh, not have um, investigated or looked closely at uh, methods. A lot of universities are still not um, deeply analysing and interrogating and examining historical uh, methods. So this came uh, late to me. But that one little uh, request, which, as I said, uh, miffed me at the time, uh, actually sent me on a uh, new trajectory. It forced me to come to grips with what um, historians are doing, uh, how they approach their subject, the different ways they approach their subjects and topics. And as a result of uh, that, I put together a little uh, template and I gave my presentation to John Lloyd's uh, class, and at the end of it, he said, um, that was a, a good job. There's a book in that. So I thought, well, I was finishing off a uh, another book at that stage, and I thought, oh, well, this, this can be my next um, project. So I started looking at the historiography of um, sport history and uh, what uh, my colleagues were uh, doing in the field. And that was, as, as I say, a real revelation to me, a real revelation to see all these different ways that uh, historians go about their um, task. So as a result of John Loy's uh, request, I think I probably got about uh, uh, probably 75% of what the... Um, of what uh, sport historians were doing. At the time, I probably got 90%, but um, of what sport historians were doing, probably 95% of what sport historians were doing. Um, But then in terms of the broader field of history, probably around about 75%. 
And then a couple of years later, um, I was speaking to my friend and colleague, uh, Murray Phillips from the University of Queensland. And, we, and he too, at around about this time, a few years in front of me, started looking at the historiography of uh, sport. And he said, oh, you need to uh, really look at what the, uh, the radical um, philosophers of uh, philosophers of history are, are saying, and they'll give you a new slant. And he gave me a couple of uh, uh, references, and uh, that uh, trans transformed my whole understanding of the history of sport and what uh, historians uh, do. So as a result of that, I ended up um, about three years later writing uh, The Field, Truth and Fiction in, uh, in uh, Sport History, um, and at the same time, I started thinking about, well, what I need to really do is go back over all my old work and ask the question, um, could I rewrite this work uh, differently if I took a different slant, if I took a different historiographical approach? So over about the next five years, uh, or, or perhaps even longer, I wrote a series of articles, uh, around about eight articles, revisiting every piece of work that I'd done, um, uh, again, from a different historiographical um, slant. So that took me, as I say, to uh, well into the uh, early uh, 2000s. And then at that stage, um, I started thinking about, well, what, what's the next big project? Um, what can I do which is uh, different? And I thought um, I need to really start venturing now into uh, a more creative approach to uh, history and ask, uh, ask myself, what can we do with history in a new uh, creative way? And so at the same time, I'm thinking about, well, what's going to be my subject for looking at this new creative uh, topic? And I decided, well, let's go back to uh, the beach I'll choose a uh, beach, and at that stage, just purely coincidentally, I happened to be in uh, uh, Bondi doing some other research, and I thought I can still remember the moment when I decided to do this project. I was actually on the bus from uh, Bondi Junction down to Bondi Beach, and I thought, I know I'm going to write a uh, biography, uh, a creative-type biography of uh, Bondi Beach. So that was in uh, 2005. And it took me uh, the best part of uh, 16 years uh, to eventually uh, complete it. But I just uh, chipped away um, over time. And um, people may say, well, uh, why did it take so long? And uh, I, uh, to be blunt, I blame the university system, which when they, uh, when they give... Uh, so they make people uh, deans and administrators. Um, they force them to become uh, bureaucrats, and uh, consumes a uh, lot of a lot of um, time. And I must be blunt again, say unnecessary time on administrivia. But anyway, that's another uh, that's another uh, another story and another uh, battle to be uh, fought. I, um, um, yeah, no, please. Yeah, I was just going to say one that I, I think for people who haven't read the book, I mean, one of the things I would I would point to about it and kind of ask you about is that actually it's not it's not one thing. It's it's not a history. It's not a geography. It's not a biography. And so I, I, it presses on all of those things and kind of makes you question like, OK, well, using a historical method, what does that give us and what? what kind of assumptions are we making when we, when we choose to write our histories, right? And your, your work doesn't allow you to do, it doesn't allow us as readers to do that in a simple way. Like it actually goes, here's the story we tell, but here's what we leave out and why we pick these things. So I wonder, you know, why, why is it that you, you, where do you cite this in terms of genre or do you, is that a thing you're not interested in? <laughs> uh, and if you do, like why, how, how did you come to that decision to kind of go, okay, what? Well, I'm going to question all the genres I'm in actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So then I had to work out uh, exactly um, 
how I was going to write the book, and that took me uh, the best part of uh, five years. I was collecting all the data about different aspects of Bondi as um, I proceeded, but then I still had to grapple with how am I actually going to uh, do this? How am I going to uh, present this? So I eventually um, put it into uh, two... Well, there's three parts to uh, the book, and I'll uh, explain that as we uh, proceed. But in terms of uh, genre, um, it doesn't fit, and that's um, yeah, that's part of the problem of um, um, ac- academe, isn't it? Um, people say, "Oh, we want multidisciplinary work, and we want to see people crossing uh, disciplinary boundaries, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But ultimately, uh, they don't. Ultimately, what they really want is uh, reinforcement of their own um, their own silos. Universities aren't really interested in employing people who work across uh, multi disciplines. They say they do, or certainly administrators say they do. Administrators say they do, but then when um, the hiring committees come and sit down uh, to actually appoint someone, they're all looking to see well. Uh, we want to uh, employ someone like me and who works in my discipline. Um, they're not interested in uh, thinking about people working beyond their own uh, beyond their own disciplines. And this is again me being uh, uh, blunt here, uh, Keith. But um, let me uh, just go back to uh, your other point about how how the uh, the book works. So the first one, the first part of the book, is really just an introduction and. And I just talk about how I came to write the book and the structure of the book. And essentially, the book is divided into uh, two parts. Uh, Bondi, I call the first part Bondi in Place and History. And this is a uh, eight or so chapters um, examining a particular uh, theme. So there's a theme, uh, sand, storms, uh, Eura, the, the, this is the reference to Aboriginal people who were inhabiting uh, Sydney uh, prior to um, European colonisation. And then I've got a chapter on uh, colonisation and the different images and the different ways in which um, British settlers and colonisers saw Bondi. Then got a chapter on uh, surf bathers, one on surf lifesavers, one on surfboard riders, one on nature and culture and one on uh, the pavilion. So that's all in... uh, Bondi in place and history. And what each of these chapters is doing is taking this theme and it is saying, um, it is saying, okay, what are the debates around uh, sand? Where is there agreement? Where is there silence? Where is there disagreement? Um, And what conclusions can we draw from um, these uh, debates? And, and this is another reason why the book uh, took so long to uh, write is because as academics, we're trained to draw conclusions. We're trained to weigh up the evidence, make a judgment and draw a conclusion. Um, and I wanted to do something different and say, hey, what happens when we look at all the evidence and we can't draw a conclusion? What are we left with? So every uh, chapter in this first part, Bondi and Place and History, is about um, trying not to reach a conclusion. And that, um, I have to, I can assure you, is uh, very, very uh, difficult to do. So essentially, I had to write everything uh, three times. Once from the perspective of arguments for, once from the perspective of arguments against, and then the third time is... Uh, not looking for a con- not look n- not trying to draw a conclusion, but on the contrary, saying um, there is no conclusion here. We're left uh, we're left asking uh, questions. So yeah, I'll go um, over. To the I, I, I found Sorry, that really no, no, no. I was going to say I found that really interesting because you actually kind of explode the nature of narrative. You go historians pretend like we're just ca- you know capturing evidence and then we are recapitulating the past but that's not what we're doing we're telling stories and when we when we break away from that narrative chain that we train ourselves so well to ignore um, what are we left with <laughs> which could be complicated and difficult exercise I'm sure it felt counterintuitive <laughs> but it made a lot of sense when you get to the end 
it's very counterintuitive after you've spent, you know, 10 years uh, getting to the stage where you've done your uh, PhD and then another 10 years of uh, uh, teaching students of, uh, you know, this is the conclusion, what you know, drawing a conclusion or telling the story. And, of course, the historical narrative is very much about um, ending with a, um, uh, ending a, a moral, having a moral ending and a moral conclusion, which is supposed to provide us some direction into the present and to the uh, direction into the future. So you're 100% uh, uh, correct there, uh, Keith, in my humble um, opinion. And then I'll just uh, briefly say that the, uh, the, the third part of the book I call The, the Voice of Bondi, and this is a uh, biography of um, Bondi Beach written from the perspective of uh, the beach. So this is the beach having a uh, viewpoint, having a perspective and drawing all these different themes together and presenting um, its its um, opinion. And um, so I call this uh, the voice of Bondi as the broad um, as the broad site as the broad um, title for the for the part of the book. But I also uh, present it as a uh, autobiography of Bondi uh, speaking and this is of course, my attempt to give uh, Bondi um, um, the uh, the voice to give Bondi the uh, the center stage and to comment on all these uh, uh, themes which I um, which I identified in the first part of the uh, book and you know clearly I'm the author of the uh, the autobiography. Um, but where decisions have to be made, then I'm saying, well, what would a what would a uh, beach um, say about, for example, um, rising uh, sea levels? What would the what, what what would the beach say? How how would the beach uh, what would the beach attribute that uh, to? And so this comes back to uh, the geology of the of, of uh, Bondi. A uh, couple of points that I should make uh, first of all is that uh, Bondi f- over the last around uh, about uh, X million years, about uh, over 2 million years, Bondi has existed plus or minus in its own, in its current position around uh, about uh, four times. So sea level rise, sea level fall, um, and then it comes back, and you've got a kind of, you know, a Bondi kind of Bondi uh, beach uh, previously. So there is a life cycle there, geological um, life cycle. The second point, which uh, actually saved me a lot of uh, time and uh, and effort, and was very uh, fortuitous, is that our Aboriginal people have been living in Australia. There's a very extended debates over that, but there is an agreement that uh, Bondi. That, sorry, that Aboriginal people have been living in uh, Sydney for, for at least uh, 25,000 uh, years. So that we can accept that, or I'm prepared to accept that as a uh, historical or geographical or uh, geographical or anthropological uh, fact. So the critical point here is that Aboriginal people um, um, were at, in the Bondi area before Bondi was even uh, formed. So they moved, um, um, they moved out to the uh, east as the sea level, as the sea level um, dropped, and as the sea level rose again, uh, they moved um, west back towards where Bondi currently um, exists. So. The, the, the important point is that they were there before Bondi was born. So I talk about the birth of Bondi six and a half thousand years ago. Um, but the yeah, that's important... one of the one of the uh, just not to not to cut in. I'm sorry, uh, Doug, but uh, one of the things I, I loved about the book, and I think your first two chapters bring that out really clearly, is the way in which you are um, playing with the notion of of agency and who gets to be an agent, who's an actor in this story. And so your first two chapters are sand and storms where these geological and climatological features are agents um, to, to, to a certain extent. And I was getting real big history and David Christian vibes reading, <laughs> reading this. Um, but I, I, um, I, I wonder if you can talk, I mean, you're already talking a little bit about that, but to tell us a little bit then about, you know, how, 
alpondiforms six and a half thousand years ago and what's you know what is it that you learned when kind of studying history from the point of view of sand and the point of view of storms right well um let me uh just give you uh an example that around uh bondi as an agent so we can say that uh or bondi as an actor sorry we can say that bondi is certainly um an actor and um how how do we um know that how can we uh conclude that what leads us to say that well let's talk about bondi on a uh sunny day for example You've got the uh, the golden sands. You've got um, if the weather's um, relatively stable, um, and you've got nice uh, blue skies, then you're going to have people being. Um, and this is I'm talking about contemporary life. You're going to have people drawn to uh, Bondi, so they're going to come down there, and they they're going to be attracted to the uh, physical uh, world, the physical environment. So I'm quite happy to argue there that uh, Bondi is an actor and it has influence over uh, people's uh, lives. The subtly blows through uh, and the, the stands, sand starts getting kicked up, the, the water starts getting uh, ruffled, the waves start breaking and Bondi becomes an unpleasant place. Bondi's moods change and uh, 90%, 95% of the people uh, suddenly leave. So there we have, as I say, uh, Bondi as a, uh, a real um, actor. Again, Bondi, you go down to uh, Bondi on, on a sunny day, the water's relatively calm, uh, you jump in, uh, but all of a sudden uh, you're not a great swimmer and a rip current um, takes you out to uh, sea. And again, Bondi is the actor there. It's having an influence on your life. And if you don't know how to get out of the rip current and uh, the surf lifesavers uh, don't see you, then um, all of a sudden you've got uh, uh, problems and uh, Bondi may release you or Bondi may not release you. So um, you're at the mercy of uh, Bondi, the, the uh, actor. From a historiographical perspective, the issue is um, for me, okay, so Bondi is definitely an actor, um, and but, but can Bondi have a voice? And this is where... You know, people will uh, debate um, whether giving Bondi a voice is actually a, a legitimate, it's a, certainly a literary tool, and uh, readers can decide for themselves whether um, it works to give Bondi a voice. Um, I think it. Uh, I think it's uh, presentable. I think it kind of uh, works. Um, I haven't heard anyone say it. It's uh, totally fails as uh, yet. So I'm uh, uh, relatively comfortable saying uh, you can give uh, Bondi uh, a voice. So we know that uh, many authors and many uh, scholars will give uh, dogs and cats, and uh, and I've even seen. Um, authors giving um, carpet a voice. So if all these um, material um, objects can have a voice, um, then I don't see why uh, uh, Bondi can't um, as well. So I think that, I hope that kind of um, answers your question there, um, um, Keith. The, the issue you asked about uh, the, the uh, geology and the geography of uh, uh, Bondi, again, well, if I could give the example of um, the chapter on uh, storms and the impact of storms at uh, Bondi, there have been many, uh, many, many severe storms at uh, Bondi going back um, um, in terms of... Um, European records going back to the 1850s, the meteorological records recording uh, storm, severe storms since the, uh, the 1850s. So I provide a list in the book of some of those uh, storms, but I focus particularly on uh, two storms, the storm of uh, 1912 and the storm of uh, 1974. The storm of 1974 was uh, pretty de um, destructive. Uh, but the interesting thing about that storm is, and I think there's a um, there's a lesson here for us for those who uh, uh, study uh, climate. The 
or for those who yeah for those who study our climate and weather the point about the 1974 storm it wasn't just one destructive event it was a series of storms which fed on each other um, and before the beach had a chance to uh, recover the next storm hit and denuded the beach uh, uh, a little bit more and before the beach had a chance to recover a third uh, storm hit and again that's where the uh, the big uh, destruction came it came from a series of events rather than um, one one massive uh, event so that's the um, that's the thing about the the present and, um, and the weather in the present time and climate change. It's the intensification of these events and their greater frequency, which is going to have um, have the um, an impact. But going back to the storm of uh, 1912, which is. Uh, um, famous or infamous in the eyes of some people at uh, Bondi for um, for one particular reason, and that is um, the sources of the time of the storm of 1912 and the literature around uh, 1912 blame the storm of 1912 for for putting the um, the so-called big rock. Um, Lifting the big rock from the, uh, the the seabed or the shore platform onto the top of the shore platform and creating what is now known today as uh, the big rock big rock at uh, the Ben Buckler um, the Ben Ben Buckler headland and um, and uh, shore platform. It's a massive rock over two hundred and thirty uh, ton, and it's a very very uh, prominent uh, ge- geological uh, uh, feature. Um, in in Bondi, and there have been lots and lots of uh, controversies um, around the Big Rock and explanations to try to explain um, um, how it was um, how how the rock came to be on top of the platform. Lots of uh, debates, really intense debates around that, which are uh, still um, ongoing. And the problem was, although the sources of the day around 1912. Uh, refer to the appearance of the big rock as a result of that storm. No one's ever been able to explain precisely um, how the rock actually moved onto the shore platform um, and no one actually saw it move um, onto the platform. And so there is a doubt, there is space there for scepticism, there is space there for doubt and it's... um, and we see this in contemporary times in the uh, the political sphere, how um, the politicians in particular will seize any space um, or any uncertainty to manipulate that for their own um, to manipulate that for their own advantage or or and their own um, interests. And so uh, this is a great example. How did this rock actually uh, come to uh, be there? And um, how do we explain it? And of course, there are some people just they simply refuse to believe that the that a wave could move a rock of over two hundred and thirty tons um, out of the water onto the uh, the shore uh, platform. And part of the problem also is that um, oceanographers have also struggled to actually produce the the formula for a wave to be able to move the uh, the rock and so we've seen over the course of uh, yeah well over the course of basically a century we've seen the uh, the force required to move a rock of that uh, magnitude um, move from um, uh, 10 meters down to uh, uh, just under six meters so the formulas have been constantly uh, refined and um, adjusted and explained. Um, and now we're seeing, uh, as I say, the size of, of, of a wave necessary to move a rock of that mass um, is now down to round about, uh, I think it's about 5.8 uh, 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 metres. And so, well, we've seen uh, storms at uh, Bondi generating waves of that uh, of that magnitude. So it is now within the realms of possibility if you are a sign, an oceanographer and a scientific believer to believe that that 
um, that a wave could have that uh, much force to be able to move a rock of that uh, size. But as I say, irrespective of what I say or irrespective of uh, much better oceanographers uh, and um, ocean geologists than me, uh, the ability to convince people of that is uh, extremely uh, difficult. Extremely difficult. Uh, I, I did. I did love that uh, that particular part of that chapter because you you went through all the conflicting evidence and and you do. This is exactly what I was saying earlier about you know maybe not leaving us with this quite a simple story. Is is you do point out? Oh, there were pictures of an earlier rock, but it doesn't really look like that rock, and people don't agree. The, the, these two chapters in particular, I want to really highlight for people who haven't read the book yet. These two chapters are really rich with the that kind of interdisciplinary engagement. So you you, you are as a reader, you're gonna have to read some of the science. You're gonna have to read some of. <laughs> you're gonna have to try to make sense of of hydrological data to understand can these rocks be moved? <laughs> Which I imagine was was uh, I didn't know you did your your BA in in geography, so maybe that wasn't as tricky for you. But I'm reading it going, oh man. I, kind of bring back the science for me. <laughs> uh, but it was really fascinating. What, one of the things that, that what, what those chapters did for me and then leading into the next two chapters kind of which work, which for my mind worked a little bit together, the chapter on uh, indigenous or Yora use of Bondi country and then the, the Barawagal or colonizer uh, use of the, the countries, this way you play with the nature of static and dynamic because of course, um, settler colonial people said, oh, well, indigenous Australians' use of this space was just static. And you say, well, that's not really the case, but we don't know enough maybe to know exactly how they were using the space entirely. And then on the other, on the other hand, you know, that you also are very critical in some ways of the over-dynamic use of space, like the sense that it was settler colonial people who um, in this moment of Anthropocene, kind of have have brought real destruction to the beach, right? So even though maybe indigenous people weren't static in their use of it, they were at least homeostatic. <laughs> uh, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about about how did indigenous people use uh, how did indigenous people use Bondi country and how early settler colonial people. Um, we're, we're starting to use it. And you even talk a lot about kind of the interracial entanglements in that space, that it didn't shift quickly from one to the other, but actually remained kind of both for a long time. Yeah, well, uh, a lot of recent work on um, um, you know, Aboriginal, or in the, in, in the field of uh, anthropology, have really focused, um, have really focused on um, the entanglements between the uh, Aboriginal people and um, early uh, colonizers. Early uh, colonizers. Um, I should also just uh, point out a little bit about uh, terminology here, uh, Keith. So I use I use the so the term Yura uh, is is basically applied, as I understand it, applied to Aboriginal people who lived across the uh, the Sydney uh, basin, and then for the people who live south of uh, Sydney Harbour, um, down to as far as uh, Nowra, even um, uh, some people call them the uh, the, the the greater uh, Darawal. Um, uh, nation or you know, indigenous uh, nation, um, and so that's the term I use. I use the term uh, Darawal for the people, for Aboriginal people who moved um, in and out of uh, Bondi. And what contemporary anthropologists such as uh, Paul Irish are, uh, are highlighting is that there was a lot, a lot of movement of Aboriginal uh, people um, up and down uh, the coast, and that there was a, and they were. It was, it, was a, it was a kind of a continual, continual movement following um, food sources, following uh, climate, following uh, weather, following um, what was happening in the, in the greater um, environment. So this was in stark contrast to the, uh, the first settlers' characterization of uh, Bondi as being uh, a barren. So there was a real barrenness uh, trope in the early uh, narratives. 
And what I'm trying to do in this chapter is say, hey, now wait a second, the actual area, um, although it was um, um, sand covered, particularly in, uh, in, in the Bondi Rose Bay um, uh, Valley, um, there was also lots of uh, plentiful uh, food sources, if not in, in uh, the Bondi Valley itself, but certainly uh, in the surrounding um, areas. There was, uh, there was enough water, there was enough uh, food, both um, plant and uh, animal, and particularly, of course, uh, fish. So it was very much for the, uh, the Euro people as best as we can, for the Darawal people as best as we can ascertain, this was a, um, uh, a plentiful um, environment. I use the term uh, Berawalgol, which has been um, identified as an early uh, Euro word or Darawal word for uh, foreigner, and I keep that um, throughout the throughout the uh, the narrative. And of course, this will uh, this will uh, really um, offend uh, uh, some people. But one of the uh, what my standard reply to this is well. Uh, we as Europeans have been really, really happy to uh, characterise and uh, label and name um, other groups of people, um, but perhaps we should also realise that other groups of people um, it's, is within their rights and it is common among them to uh, also name us. And perhaps we may not be so, uh, and perhaps the names they bestow on us uh, may not be so uh, flattering. So we're very, very happy to be uh, stereotype and be derogatory about other groups. Um, um, you also have to expect other groups to uh, label and categorise um, us also. So I stick with this term, uh, Berawalgal, throughout. And I also justify it on the grounds that Whereas the uh, Euro and Darawal people and Aboriginal people in general have a philosophy of a holistic philosophy which acknowledges the importance of the land and the environment and its uh, all encompassing um, impacts upon us, um, the Berawal will never have, and I would say that even today, very, very few um, Australians. Uh, non-Indigenous Australians uh, actually have that holistic philosophical approach towards the environment where the environment is a part of them and they are part of the um, environment and actually live it out to its um, um, logical uh, conclusions. So that's why I use that term and um, I stick with it throughout. Clearly... um, uh, Clearly, most Australians um, regard themselves as Australians and they're Indigenous to the extent that they're uh, not going anywhere. There's nowhere for them to go. They can only be a citizen of Australia. No other country is going to uh, uh, welcome them. Um, I mean, limited numbers of people, and I'm an example of that, uh, can move from uh, country to country. So I've moved from Australia to South Africa, to uh, New Zealand, uh, to Canada. But it is uh, it is a tricky process. It is a long process. It is a bureaucratic process. It's not a friendly process. It's not a welcoming process. Um, it's a it's it's mentally, psychologically, and physically um, hard. So it's certainly not something that uh, twenty five million people can suddenly up and out and say, oh well, we're not indigenous to Australia. We're 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 moving off now. We're going we're going back wherever back uh, might be. So, yeah, there are 25 million people who can call themselves um, Australian and committed and Indigenous to um, Australia, but I am saying that there is a difference between the First Nations people of Australia and those of uh, European um, of European descent in terms of their holistic understanding and approach to um, the um, environment. And it's a totally different ontology, it's a totally different uh, uh, philosophy. And until until that is actually um, addressed and it's not going to happen uh, quickly, you've got absolutely uh, no chance of get, getting to grips with uh, climate change, uh, for example. That's a story for today. 
Doug, in your chapter on what you call uh, surfboard riders, what were you, what issues were you trying to address? And, and maybe also, why did you call it surfboard riders instead of surfers? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's an interesting question, uh, Keith. And um, what I'm trying to do in um, several of these chapters, and this is, these are the chapters which give um, a physical culture slash uh, sporting um, dimension uh, to the to the book and bring out the uh, as I say the physical culture side of Bondi in the um, in, in in the book and the surfboard uh, the surfboard riders um, I, I'm using that term to distinguish surfboard riders from uh, body surfers um, and surfboard and surf bathers um, so both those terms surf bathers and um, and 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 um, uh, shooters, uh, uh, surf shooters, and um, body uh, uh, body surfers. I'm, I'm using the term surfboard riders to separate to distinguish uh, these earlier forms of uh, surfers. And when the press was talking about surfers in the uh, the early twentieth uh, century, they were talking about. Um, people who were essentially uh, riding waves just uh, with their body as opposed to uh, surfboards. The term surfboard rider um, and, and surfer really comes into vogue in the 1960s with the um, rise of the, the so-called uh, Malibu surfboard, which made surf, surfing very much more uh, popular uh, in Sydney and in um, in Bondi, so surfboards, as we kind of uh, know them, were introduced to uh, Sydney in the early twentieth uh, century. But um, they were heavy, they were cumbersome, and they were uh, difficult to uh, manoeuvre across the uh, the face of the wave. So. Uh, people who were riding the waves at that stage were were called surfers, but they were riding with them without uh, boards and, and, and boards of all different uh, shapes and, and uh, sizes. So the term surfer or surfboard rider becomes uh, really uh, popular in the in the nineteen sixties. Um, so I'm I'm really using the term surfboard rider just to make it very clear as to how. Um, the, this term evolved and uh, developed. But what I'm trying to really do in this chapter on uh, surfboard riders, surfers, is to call into question this uh, this notion that Bondi is a surf mecca. Uh, yep, it is a, is a place where uh, people go for a, uh, a wave. Um, it's, a, it's a place where particularly tourists visit, particularly visiting surfers uh, visit to have a uh, look. But the waves themselves are not particularly uh, great at uh, Bondi. They're not really conducive to uh, nice long uh, walls of uh uh, faces of waves for performing uh, lots of uh, manoeuvres. It's really a very uh, short wave and it's a very, very much a, uh, let's call it a uh, working wave. It's a wave where you go when you've got nowhere else to uh, go. But most local surfers are looking uh, well beyond Bondi for their, uh, to get their, uh, the, the best waves and the, um, the most enjoyable experience of uh, surfboard riding. But beyond uh, that also, what I'm trying to do in this chapter is talk about how um, the narrative of uh, the surfer at Bondi uh, has yet to be um, written and that the options for presenting uh, the surfer are just um, just so, so, uh, so many and, uh, and, and multiple. We can have the, the surfer as the, uh, the hero, the surfer as the villain, the surfer as uh, the anti-authority, um, the, uh, the surfer as the, the saviour of uh, the Bondi environment. Um, the options are just um, uh, almost uh, endless. And surfers themselves have not uh, really um, contributed much to this, to creating a, a full and um, interesting 
uh, narrative with a uh, moral ending. Lots and lots of sources about uh, the surfer at Bondi, but uh, the narrative itself is um, almost uh, is very conspicuous by its um, absence. There'll be narratives about uh, um, different time periods, particularly uh, um, the, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s. They, they tend to run in uh, decade-long uh, blocks, but there's no grand narrative of the uh, the Bondi surfer over the uh, 20th and uh, 21st uh, uh, century. And that is, uh, to me, that is um, rather um, striking. Uh, that that silence is uh, particularly uh, striking. What I try to do in the in the book is highlight the different options uh, for someone who was going to put together the narrative of the uh, the Bondi surfer. Now, Doug, I I want to mention that there are two other chapters that I don't think we have a, a lot of time. We can't probably uh, talk about them, uh, but. The, before the autobiographical chapter, the biographical chapter, which I want to, us to speak about, which are uh, nature and culture and the pavilion. And I have to admit, I, my wife is actually an architect and city planner type person. So I, I was really keen on this and I was showing her some of the images, especially the image of that kind of like planned redevelopment of the, of the waterfront. That was, uh, so these chapters are also uh, fascinating, excellent, um, both for illuminating what people have done with the, the, the beachfront, but also for illuminating what other possibilities existed. And, and also talking, especially in that chapter on the pavilion, about how what once was an eyesore can suddenly become beloved, depending on the political forces at work in, in terms of the redevelopment of, of space. Um, so those, I, I want to emphasize those, if you're interested in that stuff, listeners, those chapters are, are um, highly recommended. But I want us to save some time to talk about this last chapter, Doug, because for me, it was the most, um, I, I used the word daring earlier, but it was very, in some ways kind of uh, methodologically daring. So you talked earlier about this chapter as a as a biography, and in the chapter you quote Hermione Lee, who says, is quoting somebody else saying that, of course, all biographies are really autobiographies. <laughs> so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what, why you wrote and, and how, what, what were you trying to capture in this chapter of, of a biography of Bondi Beach written from the perspective of the beach itself? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, uh, Keith. That's a uh, great question, and of course, it comes to the uh, the crux of the book. What I'm trying to do there is uh, do something different, do something uh, uh, a little bit uh, creative um, within. I'm still arguing that I'm working within the uh, the realms of uh, the historical narrative, and I'm true to the uh, the sources. Um, there's no, uh, I'm not, I'm not making uh, anything up, and every Every um, statement there, uh, and you'll note there that every uh, statement of uh, which has uh, um, uh, sources they are I've listed there. They're all uh, referenced, so nothing is has uh, made up. But what I'm doing, I'm doing the exact opposite to what I did in the f- first uh, section of the book. Bondi in place and history, where in, whereas in Bondi in place and history there is no conclusion. What I'm trying to do in the voice of Bondi is uh, write very much a uh, a narrative with a beginning, with a uh, end, and with the end pointing to a moral um, conclusion and a moral uh, direction. Uh, Teach, giving us uh, some some uh, lesson, and the lesson here, very much from the perspective of uh, Bondi, is Bondi is acknowledging that it has a uh, natural uh, life, probably of round about uh, twenty thousand uh, years, for an embayed beach on the New South Wales uh, coast. So the geology of um, rising and falling uh, sea levels would uh, indicate that uh, Bondi could expect to live around about uh, 20,000 years, at 6,500 years old uh, now. Uh, Bondi now is starting to uh, sweat and say, am I going to get to my... Um, 
uh, 20,000 years. You know, it's like a bit like uh, um, humans. What is it, uh, three score and 10, something like that. Uh, you know, we, this is what we kind of expect to live to. In Bondi's case, it's uh, 20,000 years, 6,500 years old now. It's starting to sweat. Am I going to get to my, uh, uh, my natural uh, 20,000 years with the sea level um, starting to um, rise? Perhaps imperceptibly at the at the moment, but um, you get a few uh, s- consecutive storm surges. You get a rising uh, water table, and it's going to uh, change the game. Certainly, the consultants that Waverley Council has brought in, um, they're saying, okay, that the uh, the promenade's going to be significantly undermined and it's going to become um, unstable at least, uh, certainly at the latest by 2050, um, what are we going to, uh, what are we going to uh, do then? And it's uh, certainly worthwhile pointing out to uh, readers, Keith, that uh, the Bondi Beach, Rose Bay uh, Valley there, um, uh, Old Southhead Road, which runs essentially follows the watershed across that the middle of that valley. It's only uh, four and a half meters above uh, sea level um, at the moment, so the sea doesn't have to rise uh, too far before a lot of the uh, the properties in the valley are going to be uh, put at risk by things like the uh, the rising. Uh, uh, water table and uh, storm surges. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's happening and it's uh, it's uh, coming. So if you're uh, um, you know, t- 20 years old now, 30 years old now, your children and uh, grandchildren are going to be uh, uh, living it. Um, so that is um, uh, basically a um, geographical, uh, geological uh, fact. So I'm writing this from the uh, the perspective of the beach, and the beach is saying, "Hey, I'm uh, I'm sweating on what's uh, happening in in the world now. I'm sweating on the fact that you say you being uh, the Berrawogel, you say that you uh, love me, you say you love to come down to Bondi, you love to see the uh, the open spaces, you love to see the." Uh, uh, the big horizons. You love to see the move, the water moving, and the clouds moving. You love to see the birds uh, flying, etc., etc. But what have you actually uh, done for me? And uh, I and Bondi is suggesting, well, actually, you've done uh, stuff all for me, apart from uh, throw your cigarette butts on the uh, in the sand. Uh, no one enforces it. You throw your litter all over the place. Um, to clean up the litter, you need a massive um, army of people and uh, their machinery, which is only contributing more uh, junk and rubbish into the into uh, the place. Uh, you're building these uh, facilities for visitors, such as the uh, the pavilion and the. Uh, Bondi um, icebergs, but what are they doing to actually uh, make me a more natural and um, attractive uh, place? So these are all the questions that uh, uh, Bondi um, are asking. And these, of course, uh, I've got to say, Keith, these are uh, hard questions for me um, also, but they highlight the the use of my term uh, Berrawogel. So um, I love to go to the Bondi um, icebergs. I, I think it's an absolutely uh, fantastic place, but um, it's also a uh, a blight on the on the on the physical environment. So socially, I'm drawn to it, but I also recognise that it is an absolute uh, um, blight on the environment. The the shore platform should never have been dug out in the the first place to create the pool. Um, you know, that was a destruction of the uh, the natural environment. Um, uh, you know, the, the uh, buildings around the, um, you know, the changing rooms and the restaurants and the coffee bars and all that, you know, I love to go to those, I love to go to those places. I love to see the view there, but they're also a uh, blight on the, uh, the environment. 
the the, uh, the physical environment and the natural environment. So you can't have it uh, uh, you can't have it uh, both ways. So you know, I, I realise the uh, the paradoxes and contradictions in my own uh, position. Um, and I know that when I go down to uh, Bondi, just um, taking my surfboard out into the surf, I'm creating uh, pollution. The wax comes off the the wax comes off the board. The plastics come out of my um, out of my uh, swimsuits and uh, wetsuits. Um, I, I, and the, the sunscreen that I'm uh, wearing that washes off into the water, and that's all. Uh, that's all. Uh, that's all polluting the natural environment. And that's before we even look at the manufacture of the surfboard, the manufacture of the wetsuit, and the environmental uh, costs of uh, uh, those. So I recognise uh, my own contradictions and my own uh, paradoxes. Um, and one way of getting around that is um, from a um, a, a literary perspective is to, as I say, is to give uh, Bondi um, uh, the voice and say, hey, uh, this is what you are, are doing to me. doesn't matter whether you're doing it to me inadvertently or uh, by design. The facts of the matter are you are uh, destroying me. So that's what, that, that's what the goal of this uh, autobiography is. I was struck, um, you know, in the context of today, too, by this. And this is not, not a question that you necessarily have to answer, but just some uh, thing that struck me in the in what you're saying and in reading the book, um, how often we as, as scholars can come to um, recognize the, the kind of let's say the, the impossibilities or the, of justice, the hypocrisies in our own life. And so your use of voice there kind of mirrored for me um, in some ways the calls for indigenous voice in here in Australia, this kind of, as, as, you, as you mentioned earlier, that kind of impossibility of 25 million people going somewhere else, but also then the recognition that maybe we all live on unceded indigenous land and how do we, how do, how do we live with these two things at the same time? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, your book doesn't doesn't provide an answer with what to do about Bondi. I mean, some although I did I did like the imagination of, of the Bondi Rose Bay Valley. You know, two stories only <laughs> would re- require a lot of of, of demolition. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the point is that the uh, the council at at some point. Uh, I would have thought, and I may be uh, wrong. I've got to, I've got to address this, and it's better that they address it in uh, 2020 than wait to um, uh, 2050 when it's going to be more expensive to address and um, uh, and a lot more uh, difficult. So, uh, you know, that we need to, to decide, or the councils need to decide, the policymakers have to decide, are we going to uh, uh, live at the beach or are we going to uh, live with the beach? If we're going to live with the beach, then how are we going to adjust our uh, living conditions, our living circumstances to um, accommodate that? And some of the suggestions I had were, I don't think they're um, un- un- unreasonable, nothing above the, nothing below the five metre uh, contour line in the in the Rose Bay uh, Valley, nothing above the uh, the ridge lines, nothing over uh, two storeys, no, 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 um, no um, construction taking up more than eighty percent um, of the of the uh, the block to allow um, for more plants and more uh, uh, gardens and insects and birds and those sorts of um, animals and creatures to uh, come back into uh, the environment. I don't think any of that's um, um, impossible. Uh, but you've got to decide when you're going to um, um, address it. Doug, I, uh, I, I want to say it's been a pleasure to talk to you about the book, and I hesitate to ask our last question, which is, um, especially of you, somebody who's already done so much in the field of sports history, uh, as well as, um, you know, we're talking about this book, and I know you are, as you've mentioned, the, the dean and emeritus already from another university. But our last question is always, uh, what can we look forward to next? And if that's, you know, nothing, I've given you enough, that's a good answer too. <laughs> but 
Yeah. Um, well, I'm still uh, very, very much interested in uh, the historiography and that will shape uh, everything I write from now on. But one of the reasons why I took up this position in uh, British Columbia, the thing which really attracted me to uh, the job was they have an adventures. I'm in a, uh, I'm in a faculty which has an adventure studies uh, department and I see uh, absolutely... Uh, great potential there to uh, make a contribution to the, uh, the literature on adventure and uh, representations of um, ad- ad- adventure. And what I'm seeing as I look around and starting to gather material, I'm seeing uh, what I think at the moment is a pacification, what I call a pacification of adventure. So adventure is now open to Everyone and, and anyone can be an adventurer now. Uh, you know, you can be 90 years old and jump on a cruise ship and you and go anywhere in the world and you are an adventurer. So uh, I think that's a vastly different uh, representation of the adventurer as a uh, pirate or as a soldier or as a conquistador or as a colonizer from uh, one, two, three or four centuries um, ago. So I'm, uh, that's very rudimentary and elementary and embryonic uh, thinking that I've got there and I'm starting to gather material on that, uh, Keith. Well, I'm sure that when you finish it, we'll be uh, very excited to read it. Thank you very much for joining us, Doug. Thank you, Keith. I really, uh, really appreciate the uh, the opportunity. It's been uh, fantastic. We've been talking to Doug Booth. He's the Dean of Adventure, Culinary Arts and Tourism at Thompson Rivers University in British Columbia, Canada. And he is a professor emeritus at the University of Otago. We've been talking about his cracker of a new book, Bondi Beach, Representations of an Iconic Australian, out with Palgrave Macmillan this year, 2022. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Doug. And I am Keith Rathbone uh, coming to you live here on the uh, New Books Network, New Books and Sports channel from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for joining us, Doug. Thank you all listeners and uh, have a great rest of your day.